0: so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening.
1: This is this mic on? Yeah. Just get the volume up a little. Bit? Hello, check, check. All right, everyone, we're going to get started. We're going to get started. How's everybody doing tonight? All right. I like to hear an excited crowd. I'm Matt Kressel, I'm the co-host of the Fantastic Fiction at KGB series with Ellen Datlow. It's held on the third Wednesday of every month. Uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, we have uh, two fabulous readers tonight. Um, so uh, we're, I'm really excited about that. Um, we have uh, upcoming in the next couple of weeks Next couple months at KGB here. Uh, next month, August 20th, Karen Hewler and Veronica Shanis. September 17th, Leanna Renee Heber and Mary Robinette Cole. Yay! October 15th, Genevieve Valentine and E. Lily Yu. Woo! November 19th, Nancy Cress and Jack Skillingstead. Yay! December 17th, Rajan Khanna and another guest, TBA, our favorite guest. January 21st, Andy Duncan and Gregory Frost February 18th, Mike Allen and possibly Ben Lurie and a bunch of other people in the next coming months I hope you can join us for that As always, uh, there is no cover charge here at uh, the KGB Bar All we ask is that you uh, buy drinks, tip your bartender uh, Please support the bar Uh, One more announcement before we get to our first reader We have books for sale in the back Jen from Word Books is... Uh, wave Jen, there she is, by the door. Yeah! So at the break, uh, go ahead and uh, you can buy the author's books, bring them up and get them signed. There are three copies of Long Hidden that Rose has. Oh, Rose Fox uh, right, here. right here has three copies of Long Hidden. Uh, both authors tonight have stories in that uh, anthology. Um, so the Victor, uh, Victor's books are in the back, Big Machine, Devil, and Silver, And Sophia's book, uh, Stranger in Olandria* is also there, so you can go ahead and buy it, get it signed. All right. Our first reader is Sophia Samitar. She's the author of the 2014 Crawford Award-winning novel, A Stranger in She She's currently working on its sequel, The Winged Histories. She's also the author of several short stories, poems, and reviews, Her work has been nominated for the Hugo, the Nebula, the Campbell, the Locust, and the British Science Fiction Association Awards. She's a co-editor for Interfictions, a journal of interstitial arts, and she teaches literature and writing at California State University Channel Islands. Here's Sophia Samatar.
2: Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you for coming. Uh, I am going to read from my short story, Ogres of East Africa, which opens the anthology, uh, Long Hidden, Speculative Fiction from the Margins of History, edited by Rose Fox and Daniel Jose Older, who are both (laughs) somewhere (laughs) here. Um, My story is set in Kenya, And uh, it's told by a young man who works as a clerk for a white big game hunter. Uh, This young man's name is Alibai. He is a Kenyan Asian. That is, he is a Kenyan with roots in the Indian subcontinent. Now, it might interest you to know that this story was inspired by a book that was published in 1907 called A Picnic Party in Wildest Africa by one C.W.L. Bullpit. It's actually, the book is actually by Mr. Bullpit and Mrs. Bullpit because Mr. Bullpit sort of helped himself to his wife's journals and, like, sprinkled them throughout his book. Um, Now, I found this book in the library at the University of Wisconsin. And, you know, how did these things happen? You know, nobody really knows. I was definitely looking for something else. But I came across this book, and I picked it up, and I was just mesmerized by it. It turned out to be my best hate read of probably, like, the last (laughs) five years. Um, And, uh, you know, well, as some of you may know, the the long-hidden anthology, the whole anthology, uh, which Victor and I both have stories in, represents a sort of... um, imaginative, speculative excavation of history, a digging for uh, material that has been suppressed. And so when I read this Picnic Party in Wildest Africa book, I thought, this book needs an imaginative whooping. It really does. Um, And I'm going to read a little bit of that book for you so that you'll see what I mean. Um, This, uh, what I'm going to read before I read my story is from the stolen journals of Mrs. Bulpit. Uh, and there's a whole interesting conversation there about race and gender and power that we don't really have time for, but it's something to keep in mind. Here's Mrs. Bulpit, This is 1907. On the shore, watching us, sits a group of five or six natives, the most hideous creatures the Almighty ever put on this beautiful earth. Tall, gaunt, large-framed, some with a scrap of cloth over the shoulder or around the loins, some stark naked the worst nightmare could never conceive such monstrosities of heads as crowned these rather fine bodies and to my dying day i shall never forget the hobgoblin who sat in the middle grinning at us a death's head with a little parchment skin drawn very tight could surely not compete with this living rival no words can describe the native's low, stupid, yet cruel expression, not unlike the Red Indians, save in matter of intelligence. The government cannot control them here, having no patrol stations, and at best, they are treacherous, sly, and thoroughly barbarous. Loathsome brutes. They have not even the sense to work. They think it altogether beneath their dignity. Compared to them, the old black woman who cooks for the Sudanese boatman, stirring her hell broth just below my cabin door is a perfect beauty. Wow. That's Mrs. Bulpet in 1907. This stuff is real, you know, this is real. And actually when you go and, and read the, the, you read material really from that era, it is worse than anything that you would put in your short story, it really is. You wouldn't put it in your short story uh, in this day and age. So um, this is also real, this is Ogres of East Africa. It's a story told in 12 ogres, and I'm gonna read you seven of them. Ogres of East Africa. Cataloged by Alibai M. Musagi of Mombasa, February 1907. One, Apul Apul, a male ogre of the Great Lakes region. A melancholy character, he eats crickets to sweeten his voice, his house burned down with all of his children inside, his enemy is the hare. My informant, a woman of the Highlands who calls herself only Mary, adds that Apul Apul can be heard on windy nights, crying for his lost progeny. She claims that he has been sighted far from his native country and that an Arab trader once shot and wounded him from the battlements of Fort Jesus. It happened in a famine year, the year of fever. A great deal of research would be required in order to match this year when, according to Mary, the cattle perished in droves to one of the years of our Lord by which my employer reckons the passage of time. I append this note, therefore, in fine print and in the margins. Always read the fine print, Alibai, my employer reminds me when I draw up his contracts. He is unable to read it himself. His eyes are not good. The African sun has spoilt them, Alibai. Apul Apul, Mary says, bears a festering sore where the bullet pierced him. He is allergic to lead. 2. Ba'ati a grave dweller from the environs of the ancient capital of Kush. The Ba'ati possesses a skeletal figure and a morbid sense of humor. Its great pleasure is to impersonate human beings. If your dearest friend wears a cloak and claims to suffer from a cold, he may be a Ba'ati in disguise. Mary arrives every day precisely at the second hour after dawn. I am curious about this reserved and encyclopedic woman. It amuses me to write these reflections concerning her in the margins of the catalogue I am composing for my employer. He will think this writing fly tracks or smudges from my dirty hands. He persists in his opinion that I am always dirty. As I write, I see Mary before me as she presents herself each morning in her calico dress, seated on an overturned crate. I believe she is not very old, though she must be several years older than I, but I am very young. Too old to walk like an old man, my employer says. As she talks, she works at a bit of scarlet thread, plating something, perhaps a necklace. The tips of her fingers seem permanently stained with color. Where did you learn so much about ogres, Mary? Anyone may learn. You need only listen. What is your full name? She stops plating and looks up. Her eyes drop their veil of calm and flash at me in annoyance, in warning. I told you, she says, Mary, only Mary. Three, Begder. A female ogre of Somaliland. Her name means long ear. She is described as a large, heavy woman, a very fast runner. One of her ears is said to be much longer than the other, in fact, so long that it trails upon the ground. With this ear, she can hear her enemies approaching from a great distance. She lives in a ruined hovel with her daughter. The daughter is beautiful and would like to be married. Eventually, she will murder Degder by filling her ear with boiling water. My employer is so pleased with the information we have received from Mary, that he has decided to camp here for another week. Milk her, Alibi, he says, leering. Eh, squeeze her, get as much out of her as you can. My employer always shouts, as the report of his gun has made him rather deaf. In the evenings, he invites me into his tent, where, closed in by walls, a roof, and a floor of Williston canvas, I am afforded a brief respite from the mosquitoes. A lamp hangs from the central pole, and beneath it, my employer sits with his legs stretched out and his red hands crossed on his stomach. Very good, alibi, he says, excellent. Having shot every type of animal in the protectorate, he is now determined to try his hand at Ogre. I will be required to record his kills as I keep track of all his accounts. It would be damn fine, he says, to acquire the ear of Degder. Mary tells me that one day, Degder's daughter, racked with remorse, will walk into the sea and give herself up to the sharks. Four, Katandabaliko While most ogres are large, Katandabaliko is small, the size of a child. He arrives with a sound of galloping just as the food is ready. There is sunshine for you, he cries. This causes everyone to faint and Katandabaliko defa- devours the food at his leisure. Katanda Baliko cannot himself be cooked. Cut up and boiled, he knits himself back together and bounces out of the pot. Those who attempt to cook and eat him may eat their own wives by mistake.
1: <laughs>
2: when not tormenting human beings, He prefers to dwell among cliffs. I myself prefer to dwell in Mombasa, at the back of my uncle's shop, Musaji and Company. I cannot pretend to enjoy nights spent in the open under what my employer calls the splendor of the African sky. Mosquitoes, whine, and something, probably a dangerous animal, rustles in the grass. The Somali cook and headman sit up late exchanging stories while the Kavirondo porters sleep in a corral constructed of baggage. I am uncomfortable, but at least I am not lonely. My employer is pleased to think that I suffer terribly from loneliness. It's no picnic for you, eh, Alibai. He thinks me too prejudiced to tolerate the society of the porters and too frightened to go near the Somalis who, to his mind, Being devout Sunnis must be plotting the removal of my Shia head. In fact, we all pray together. We are tired and far from home. We are here for money, and when we talk, we talk about money. We can discuss calculations for hours, what we expect to buy, where we expect to invest. Our languages are different, but all of us count in Swahili. Five: Kibugi: a male ogre who haunts the foothills of Mount Kenya. He carries machetes, knives, hose and other objects made of metal. If you can manage to make a cut in his little finger, all the people he has devoured will come streaming out. Mary has had, I suspect, a mission education. This would explain the name and the calico dress. Such an education is nothing to be ashamed of. Why then did she stand up in such a rage when I inquired about it? Mary's rage is cold. She kept her voice low. I have told you not to ask me these types of questions. I have only come to tell you about ogres. Give me the money. She held out her hand and I doled out her daily fee in rupees although she had not stayed for the agreed amount of time. She seized the money and tucked it into her dress. Her contempt burned me. My hands trembled as I wrote her fee in my record book. No questions, she repeated, seething with anger. If I went to a mission school, I'd burn it down. I have always been a free woman. I was silent, although I might have reminded her that we are both my employer's servants. Like me, she has come here for money. I watched her stride off down the path to the village. At a certain distance, she began to waver gently in the sun. My face still burns from the sting of her regard. Before she left, I felt compelled to inform her that although my father was born at Karachi, I was born at Mombasa. I, too, am an African. Mary's mouth twisted. So is Kibugi, she said. Six, Kipte Gurion. A fearsome, yet curiously domestic ogre of the Rift Valley. He collects human skulls, which he once used to decorate his spacious dwelling. He made the skulls so clean, it is said, and arranged them so prettily that from a distance his house resembled a palace of salt. His human wife bore him two sons, one which looked human like its mother and one called Kiptegen, which resembled its father. When the wife was rescued by her human kin, her human-looking child was also saved, but Kiptegen was burnt alive. I am pleased to say that Mary returned this morning, perfectly calm and apparently resolved to forget our quarrel. She tells me that Kiptigan's brother will never be able to forget the screams of his sibling perishing in the flames. The mother, too, is scarred by the loss. She had to be held back or she would have dashed into the fire to rescue her ogre child. This information does not seem appropriate for my employer's catalog. Still, I find myself adding it in the margins. There is a strange pleasure In this writing and not writing, these letters that hang between revelation and oblivion. If my employer discovered these notes, he would call them impudence, cunning, a trick. What would I say in my defense? Sir, I was unable to tell you. Sir, I was unable to speak of the weeping mother of Kiptegen. He would laugh. He believes that all words are found in his language. I ask myself if there are words contained in Mary's margins, stories of ogres she cannot tell to me. Kipta Ben-Gurion, she says, is homeless now. A modern creature, he roams the protectorate, clinging to the undersides of trains. Seven, Kisirimu. Kisirimo dwells on the shores of Lake Albert. Bathed, dressed in bark cloth, carrying his bow and arrows, he glitters like a bridegroom. His purpose is to trick gullible young women. He will be betrayed by song. He will die in a pit, pierced by spears. In the evenings, under the light of the lamp, I read the day's inventory from my record book, informing my employer of precisely what has been spent and eaten. As a representative of Musuchi and company, I am responsible for ensuring that nothing has been stolen. My employer stretches, closes his eyes, and smiles as I inform him of the amount of sugar, coffee, and tea in his possession. Tinned bacon, tinned milk, oat porridge, salt, ghee, The dates, he reminds me, are strictly for the Somalis who grow sullen in the absence of this treat. My employer is full of opinions. Somalis, he tells me, are an excitable nation. Don't offend them, Alibi, eh? The Kavirondo, by contrast, are merry and tractable, excellent for manual work. My own people are cowardly, but clever at figures. There is nothing, he tells me, more odious than a German. However, their women are seductive, and they make the world's most beautiful music. My employer sings me a German song. He sounds like a buffalo in distress. (laughs) Afterward, he makes me read to him from the Bible. He believes I will find this painful. Heresy, Alibi. Hey, you'll have to scrub your mouth out extra ablutions. Fortunately, God does not share his prejudices. I read, there were giants in the earth in those days. I read, for only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Thank you very much.
1: Like I said, we're, we have books for sale in the back. We're going to take about a 10, 15 minute break and uh, we'll be back with Victor Laval. So stick around. Sorry. Hello there.
2: Hello. We're going to start the second half of the reading.
1: Woo. Hi. Good. Hope people bought some books and had some drinks and settled down now and you can do the same after we're done. Uh, our second reader tonight is Victor Laval who is the author of four books, including Big Machine and The Devil in Silver. He's been a winner of the Shirley Jackson Award and a Guggenheim Fellowship, among, and has won other awards. He wrote the foreword to the Penguin reissue of Shirley Jackson's The Sundial. He lives in Washington Heights with his family. Please welcome Victor LaValle.
3: Thanks very much. It's a real honor to be here for the series and to be reading with Sophia, and uh, uh, for all of you to have shown up. Um, so uh, we've kind of turned this into a one-two punch promo for Long Hidden. So uh, uh, Sophia, sale up here. yes, Sophia did a great job of explaining what it was. So I'm just going to hold up the cover for uh, everyone to see. <laughs> And you can buy them all over the place, and it's absolutely worth it. So, uh, okay. So I thought I would read, um, when this, um, since we're also talking about, like, the origins of things, uh, I was uh, working on this, on a new novel, and uh, part of the novel is going to take place in Montana. Um, And I was doing all this reading about Montana, in particular, I was reading uh, about pioneer women homesteading in Montana. And then it turned out that the, that part of the book is not going to happen in Montana, uh, so it felt like a total waste of uh, research. But then Long Hidden came up. It's never a waste. That's right. Well, Long Hidden came up, and they said, uh, I was, They said, you know, we're open for submissions. And I said, I bet I have a story about homesteading women in Montana. So that's what I have. And uh, that's what I published here. And um, I'm going to read a portion of the story. It's, uh, too long to read the whole thing. Um, and it's called Lone Women. It takes place in Montana in 1914. Adelaide Henry and her steamer trunk had come a long way, but still had much farther to go. They'd left the family farmhouse in Redondo behind, burned down to its foundations. They escaped on a San Francisco-bound steamer, a second ship from San Francisco to Seattle, then the locomotive inland. Now there were just two more days on Mr. Olsen's rattle-trap wagon. Soon Adelaide and that steamer trunk would finally reach the small cabin, their homestead, their hideout, their exile. She checked the padlocks on the trunk every time the wagon hit a hard bump, which meant at least once an hour. When the Mudge family joined her on Olson's wagon, she checked the padlocks every 10 minutes. The Mudge's, a mother and four boys. The oldest looked to be 17 and the youngest about six. The boys all wore blindfolds. At first Adelaide thought they were playing a game, but the blindfolds never came off. It was everything Adelaide could do to keep from lifting each one and peeking at their eyes. A mother and four blind boys headed for the wilds of Montana. Adelaide's anxieties about her own homesteading were put into perspective. The Mudge's huddled down in the wagon just like Adelaide. The winds out here were stronger than sea currents. At one point, a gust got hold of Adelaide and actually lifted her to her feet, nearly flung her out of the wagon. Ms. Mudge didn't move to help, and the four boys couldn't see anything with the blindfolds. Mr. Olson, updriving the wagon intently, hardly even turned back when he told her to be careful. If she'd actually fallen out, she felt sure she'd be dead. And then the mudges and Mr. Olson would have that Seward steam trunk sitting right there in the middle of the wagon. How long before curiosity got them to open it? Before they pried the padlocks apart, Adelaide couldn't help imagining the violence that would come next. A vision of the six-year-old with his stomach torn open really just a memory of what her mother had suffered in the farmhouse, made Adelaide go tight. They overnighted in a derelict hotel, one empty entranceway, one empty parlor, ten empty bedrooms. Adelaide had expected to find a few strips of cloth, a broken chair or two, but everything had all been sold, stolen, or withered away. Like fools, no one had brought lamps or matches in their travel bags. The supplies were sealed up tight in the boxes buried in Mr. Olson's wagon. Late night hardly seemed like the time to scavenge their resources, and besides, they were all exhausted. The wagon had tossed and crashed the whole way, and each of them, even the children, limped as they moved inside. The darkness outside became worse indoors. Not even the stars in here to guide them. To Adelaide, every room felt fathomless, and she felt truly alone. Suddenly it was too much. Adelaide fled out into the wind. Her only companion here in the wild country was that steamer trunk, and wasn't that funny? She reached the wagon and crouched behind it. The wagon, even weighed down with hundreds of pounds of baggage, rattled as easily as an infant's toy. She would have to go back inside, impossible to spend a night in the open. Still, she didn't think she could go back in, couldn't sleep without some sense of protection. She had no gun. She had brought something else, though. Adelaide climbed up into the wagon and produced keys from the inner pocket of her heavy skirt. She unlocked two of the padlocks on her trunk, then hesitated at the third. Know what happened at this hotel before the town shut up for good? Mr. Olson appeared beside the wagon. She dropped her keys. They thunked on the floorboards. Her fingers clawed for them in the dark. man named Vardner got hanged right on that front porch, Mr. Olson said. He rustled cattle and got caught. Thieving is serious business around here, you understand me? Adelaide looked up at him, but I wasn't trying to. Mr. Olson nodded, though his eyes showed he wasn't listening. You climb on down now. Get inside and get to sleep. I lost my keys, she said. He gestured for her to move, and she did. I'll find them in the morning, if you drop them like you say. Adelaide Henry walked inside the hotel, crossing the threshold where a man had been hanged. She crossed the parlor and climbed the stairs. She found the door to the mudge's room, closed, and padded along the wall until she found the next open door. Inside, she unfurled a flannel bank, a blanket she'd kept in her travel bag. She folded the blanket over dub- to double the nominal comfort. In the morning, Mr. Olsen rapped at her door lightly. Once Adelaide rose and opened the door, he stood there smiling, found him. Her ring of three keys sat in his palm. She snatched them up. I told you, she said. He dipped his chin. Never should have doubted you. After she dressed, Mr. Olson met her at the wagon with a bowl of beans and a wooden spoon. She ate quickly even though the beans were hot enough to scald. Mr. Olson watched her. Out here you'll be earning your hunger every day. How long have you been awake? She asked. Me? He asked with feigned nonchalance, hours already. Had to let the horses out to graze, had to find your keys, then there's the mudges, they're gone. Adelaide stopped chewing, gone where? Went ahead, my guess, wagons come through most days, if there's space, drivers will always give a ride. To five people? Does seem like a lot, but anyone would have sympathy for a mother and four blind children. They left all their things, so I'm bound to bring it to them. After I get you to your claim, I'll keep on. Adelaide nodded, ate more beans, but tasted n- nothing. The mudges are gone. She wanted to scramble over Mr. Olson's shoulders and check her steamer trunk. The mudges are gone. A mother and four children. She decided to believe that they'd gone ahead or even turned back, gone home. Either option was better than the third. She was able to maintain this fantasy until they struck camp and Mr. Olson helped her back into the wagon. She almost didn't want to check the steamer trunk, but she knew she must. The third padlock had come off. She found all that remained of it, a portion of the curved shank. It had been stretched until it snapped. And now the mudges were gone. She tested the steamer trunk and felt the familiar weight inside. Wherever it had gone, whatever it had done, it had returned. Mr. Olson tried to make conversation on the second day of the journey, but Adelaide couldn't bring herself to speak. When they passed through a small township, Adelaide bought a replacement lock. The first Sunday after Adelaide took possession of her Montana cabin, she heard the snort of horses. She'd been working in the wicker rocker, stitching the holes that she'd developed in her gloves from digging up soft coal for the stove. Now she moved to the stove and began a fire. She brought down the tea kettle and filled it with water from a jug. Tea for a neighbor, that was just polite. The nearest homesteader, a woman named Grace Price, had come to visit three days ago with her five-year-old boy, Stan. It had felt more like an inspection than a friendly chat. If Grace and Stan were back, then Adelaide must have passed. But when she went to answer the door, she found two men standing there, two cowboys. Each one rangy as fence wire, their cheeks and forehead a, a brownish-red from years of outdoor work, their fingertips all stained brown. Both wore denim overalls and boots, the cuffs of the overalls were threadbare, the soles of the boots worn thin. The man at the door had a clean face and the one behind him, a little older, wore a beard. When she opened the door, they removed their hats. "'We don't mean to surprise you,' said the clean-faced cowboy. He smiled and his teeth were small, stained. The one behind him nodded gently. But we heard you were out here all on your own. Grace had been talking, it seemed. You make me sound like big news, Adelaide said, laughing. The man with the beard gave a short laugh. Ma'am, you are this week's headline. The tea kettle blew on the stove. You were sitting down for tea, said the younger man, hinting disappointment. I was expecting Grace and Stan, Adelaide said. Adelaide stepped back inside to get the kettle off the stove. She shut the door on both men because her bed was right there, unmade. She didn't want them to see it. She set the kettle on a stove plate to cool. When she opened the door again, the bearded man was already walking toward the horses. You're leaving? Adelaide asked. The younger man said, We came to see if you were free. The bearded man returned, leading not two horses, but three, all of them saddled. We hoped... He paused. He paused. I hope you'll come out for a ride. Matthias Kirby, who insisted on, insisted on being called Matthew, a proper US name, took her out for a wonderful afternoon. His uncle, Finn, rode a few lengths behind the whole, te- the whole time. She'd thought of them as cowboys, but the men worked on, the th- on threshing crews. Matthew's uncle operated the straw-burning steam engine, and Matthew worked as a separator man. In the next weeks, Adelaide was visited by other men like Matthew and Finn. Word spread about the new lone woman. Adelaide had come out to Montana for the seclusion, but her seclusion quickly ended. Most men asked her to come on a ride, bringing a saddled horse for her. They might take her to a ranch where they lived and worked, and she'd spend the evening eating dinner and making conversation. She realized they were all just profoundly lonely and grateful for her time. She enjoyed the time with them, too. They were often a better option than reading one of her novels all over again. Adelaide spent fewer evenings penned up inside her cabin, watching the locks rattle on her steamer trunk, listening to the wind howling outside the shack and something else howling within. So uh, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. Uh, Matthew and her start to court. He takes her out for a, a, to a dance far, far away. They spend the night. They have a good dance. They start getting closer, and then they ride back to her cabin. When Matthew reached her home, he insisted on staying, standing at the threshold of her shack, inspecting the interior. Uh, and also, uh, there's been a rumor that while, uh, while they were all at the dance, um, four horses were stolen, and the rumor is they were stolen by four blind boys. Adelaide told him that what, that what she knew about Mrs. Mudge and her boys, but Matthew had a hard time believing both that the woman he'd, been, he'd met as Mrs. Morrison was really Mrs. Mudge, and that four blind boys could steal four horses. Though he wasn't convinced, Adelaide's story left him twitchy and protective. Adelaide didn't argue when he asked to look inside her place. She invited him in. He left his rifle out on the horse. Adelaide offered him tea, but he didn't say yes or no. She realized in that moment that he wanted to stay, and she, to her own surprise, wanted him there. She doubted either of them felt true passion, not love, but affection and caution. It occurred to Adelaide that she was the only person besides Mr. Olson who could testify that Mrs. Mudge had four boys. And if these people stole horses in a place where stealing livestock was a hanging offense, what might they do to silence a witness? The ride back to Adelaide's had taken them the whole day. Very soon it would be that deep Montana night. Matthew looked out one window, I guess I can make it to the ranch if I leave right now, he said. Wasn't company a fine reason to keep a man around? Even just for tonight? If she was a different woman, she might have wanted him close for the promise of protection, but she had her own means right there in the room, in that steamer trunk. Compared to that, Matthew could only offer closeness, a night of warmth. But she reminded herself how long it had been since she'd been held. Go get your things, she said. I'll make something to eat. Matthew tried not to smile, but couldn't help himself. His chest rose and fell with enthusiasm. Just then, he seemed even younger than 23. You're sure, he asked. Don't make a woman offer twice. They were awkward together. She stood taller than him and heavier as well. But though Matthew was small and slim, the man was strong. He climbed over her with a playful grin, and when they wrestled each other flat, neither of them held back. He touched her arms and found the small scars that ran along both forearms, more than a dozen little divots in the flesh of each one. He almost asked the question, where did you get these? But was smart enough to read the expression on her half-closed eyes. This wasn't the time for telling histories. This wasn't the time for words. Afterwards, she put the kettle on and he brought her tea in bed. She had neither cream nor sugar and the tea was bitter, but his smile was kind. I could get used to this, she thought. Adelaide opened her eyes. She wore nothing and the covers were still drawn up around her. Someone was screaming, somewhere. The howls faint and muffled. For a moment she wasn't sure where she could be, in Eagle Pass, Montana, or back home in Redondo. Her home had gone madhouse. The great chair lay on its side, and the top half of the wicker rocker was shredded, serrated, as if it had been bitten off. Her books were little more than shreds of paper scattered on the furniture like ash. The pans on the walls had all come down. Matthew's blood spread on the floor and across the walls and the windows. The steamer trunk sat open and empty. How had Adelaide slept through all this? When had the world gone so wrong? Her head ached. Outside, it was still nighttime. The Montana wind howled as it crept up the side of her cabin and looped under the roof, then crashed down to chill the room. And there, in the corner, she saw it. It was out of the steamer trunk. It's back to her. The mighty body pressed against the cabin wall. Great folds of leathery skin hung from the bottom of its arms. And just below those folds were a pair of bare feet. Matthew Kirby's feet listlessly kicking, not the sign of someone fighting but of someone fading out. This thing, Adelaide Henry's secret burden, the weight she'd been carrying her whole life was consuming him. Adelaide felt very quickly the utter exhaustion of her life. Almost all of her 31 years had been spent like this, catching up, cleaning up, covering up. If she couldn't save her own mother and father, what did it matter if she let a man she hardly knew die? but this was only a moment of weariness. She couldn't abandon Matthew. She reached for the body, the thing she knew so terribly well, her sister. Its skin wasn't really skin, but thousands and thousands of tiny gray scales linked so tightly they became a natural armor, impervious to blades and bullets, a fact her father and mother had tested that awful final night. The scales felt like sandpaper to the touch, but rougher, so even grappling with Adelaide's sister could make a person, any person, bleed except Adelaide. Ever since she was a child, Adelaide could grip her sister's scales and come away unscathed. Even their mother hadn't been so lucky. Breastfeeding had been a short-lived experiment. Adelaide was sturdy enough to yoke the creature, the only living thing in the world who could restrain it. Their father once said that nature had designed Adelaide, their surprise second child, for this righteous purpose, to be a kind of living leash. Now she flung back the covers and went after her sister as a veteran rodeo rider might approach a bull, except Adelaide didn't need the aid of a flank strap to make her sister buck and jump. Adelaide squeezed the throat with one arm and pulled backward with all her weight. Her father had often blessed the fact that Adelaide had been born so strong, wide from the shoulders to the hips, one more proof to her parents as to her purpose. She had the mass to peel her sister away from Matthew Kirby and twist the massive head. Her sister's legs were short and thin, a trait they both shared, so she buckled when Adelaide pressed all her body weight down. But with the head turned, there were the teeth to contend with. The teeth. When Adelaide was young, there had been so many times when she let her arm stray too high, too close to her sister's maw. Those dimpled scars on Adelaide's forearms were the proof of all her practice. With her sister turned away from Matthew, Adelaide climbed higher to her sister's back. It was like scaling a pterodactyl. Adelaide's sister crashed forward onto her softer belly, cracking some of the floorboards beneath them. But now the head was flush against the ground, and this was the trick Adelaide had figured long ago. Monstrous or not, her sister's jaw still worked like any human being's. Biting was done by movement of the lower jaw, not the upper. If the lower jaw was pressed to the ground, and 180 pounds of Adelaide lay against the back of the head, well, that head was not coming up. She'd learned this trick after watching alligator wrestlers in a traveling show. Her sister sputtered and snorted, but Adelaide held her down. Adelaide looked back to Matthew, hard to tell in the darkness if he'd lost any limbs. She heard him choking and coughing, so she knew he still had a head, better than how she'd found her mother. Can you hear me, she asked him between heaving breaths, more coughing. Was he nodding or suffering a spasm? How did Elizabeth get out, Adelaide asked. Did she break the padlocks? Her sister hissed and belched, and through her teeth through her clenched teeth she brought a spray of blood up that soaked the floor. Matthew's blood Adelaide had worked so hard to get her sister into the steamer trunk back at the farmhouse. If she'd done it once in Redondo, then she could do it again now. She wrestled her sister forward, pushing Elizabeth toward the trunk while keeping one hand against the back of the head so the jaw wouldn't lift from, the jaws wouldn't lift from the floor. And now her sister, seeing the trunk, gave a choked wail. It looked like an open casket. Elizabeth would be buried alive again. This was the worst part for Adelaide, too. The physical strain was terrible, of course, but this noise felt worse, a kind of sobbing that might last for hours once Elizabeth got locked back in. When Adelaide was very young, she had trouble sleeping because her parents kept her sister on a short chain in the barn behind their farmhouse. Her sister might wail throughout the night, or she might simply whimper and go to sleep right away. There was no predicting it. Her father had learned to sleep through the worst of the bawling, and her mother would sit up all night reading the Bible, not for solace, but to remind herself that demons had always roamed the world. And Adelaide would sit at her bedroom window looking out at the barn. By the time she was seven, she understood that when her parents were gone, responsibility for Elizabeth would fall to her. It was like knowing a drop off a cliff was in the future, but never being sure of where or when it would come. Matthew Kirby fell forward at the waist like a child, still learning to sit upright. Adelaide couldn't look look back at him right then. She and her sister were at the trunk, and this was the trickiest part. Adelaide reached for one of her sister's arms and pulled it backward until her sister shivered and gulped with pain. Now Adelaide sang, trying to keep her voice gentle, even though she huffed from the exertion. Your mother wants you to sleep. Your father wants you to sleep. Elizabeth whimpered. The vigor seeped out of her frame. Adelaide's sister had spent most of her 40 years in chains, stuffed into root cellars, locked inside a barn. She was used to it, conditioned. Perhaps she didn't even realize there was any such thing as freedom. It was was the captivity at her family's hands that was normal and breaking loose as rare as a good dream. Your sister wants you to sleep, to sleep. Now it's time to sleep. Elizabeth climbed inside. As Adelaide closed the lid, they looked into each other's eyes. Both sisters held back tears. Adelaide closed the lid and found all three padlocks on the ground. She held them up for inspection. They weren't broken. They'd been unlocked. Her three keys no longer hung on a nail by the stove, but were on the ground right here by the trunk. You open this, she said quietly. When she looked back, Matthew was propped against the overturned great chair. He held his rifle at his waist, the rifle she thought he'd left outside. The barrel was aimed at her. Move aside, Matthew said, though his voice was weak, and I'll kill it. Adelaide slipped the padlocks back into their slots. Inside the trunk, her sister sniffled. You open this, Adelaide repeated. Only thing in here that's all locked up, he said. The rifle barrel quivering with the weight. He held the rifle in his left arm, but he was right-handed. His right arm was tucked against his side. The sleeve of his shirt sagged loosely up by the shoulder, but then Adelaide realized that he was just as naked as she, and the sagging fabric was actually his skin, practically falling off the bone. How did I sleep through all this? He stayed quiet a little while, but finally said, Laudanum. In your tea. Another pause. I just wanted to see what was inside the trunk. You wanted to see what you could take. He shook his head stiffly. Call me a thief, but you've got a devil in your home. Adelaide wasn't even angry at him. Not truly. Every man and woman out here, every child and even every beast, was well acquainted with desperation. He'd thought to pilfer her treasure, but found only her curse hiding in there. You're bleeding, she said. Let me help you so you don't die. The rifle dipped down as if he, it was nodding off and not him. But it rose once more and pointed at her. I'll stop there. Thanks.
1: Thank you. Thank you. That was great. Uh, so by the book, there are three copies here. So get them hot while they're hot. And uh, buy whatever books are back there. I don't know, you know, and get the writers to sign them and uh, hang around. You don't have to leave or anything uh, as long as you drink. <laughs> and we'll see you
3: next month.
0: You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, Sandra Martinez for her audio editing and Rajan Khanna, that's me, the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month!